Whatever just you're water, drinking. not coffee. Just water. <laughs> I, I don't understand it. Like I, I, I don't know. I, I drink coffee like water, and then everyone comes on and they're like. Water. Oh no! I had two big mugs of coffee already this morning. That's fine. <laughs> no such thing as too too much coffee. In that case, I will welcome you to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Very welcome. Um, so I don't introduce people. I let people introduce themselves because I'm terrible at doing it. So would you like to? Sure. Uh, my name is Jen Suk Bong Lee. I'm an author. I write uh, fiction. I write children's literature. I write poetry and uh, creative nonfiction for adults also. Um, I'm also an editor where I get to acquire and edit books for ECW Press here in Canada. And I have a podcast called Can't Lit, uh, which is a little pun on Can Lit, which is what we call Canadian literature here in the snowy north. Nice. And uh, yeah, that's what I do. I do a lot of different things. <laughs> I do a lot of different things. I, yeah. I noticed this. I think that's what attracted me to getting you on the show was I, I, I to, yeah, to tell you the basic story of how I discovered you was via Twitter. Oh, oh no. You know, um, which is the best place to discover honest opinions, I found. <laughs> and then that led me to, yeah, finding your books. And I, th- I think I noticed that you, you tend to cover a lot of different topics. I have a very magpie brain. I am attracted to things that are shiny and bright for a few minutes and then I move on. I, I'm sure I could, I'm sure there are names for this condition, <laughs> more clinical ones, but I, I don't know what they are. <laughs> We don't need to be defined, but things no, are better when they're abstract. When we don't know how they work, they're more magical. That's, yes. That's the way to think of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you've written stories, you've written poetry, you, you just you just dive into everything. Which is... uh, you know what? Years ago when I was in school, I was in this creative writing program. Uh, and um, one of the things one of my professors said to me was, we like to be able <laughs> to give you the tools to write all sorts of different things because that way you can um, potentially make more money as a writer, which nobody, okay. Unless you're really famous, unless you've written, unless you're JK Rowling, you're not making like tons of, tons of cash, but Mm. um, that has proven to be true in some ways, because the more things you can do, the the better you are at getting jobs and stuff. This is, this is quite boring when we talk about financial things. It's actually one of my uh, most, um, the thing I like to talk about, one of the things I like to talk about the most is sort of like financial management for artists, which um, nobody likes to talk about because artists do not like to talk about business. No, but, I, I, I don't you know. do business. <laughs> no, we hate it. No, no business, Jen. Stop it. Um, business plan is just free on a piece of paper. And that's yeah. pretty much <laughs> everything I do. <laughs> I just I just deposit things into a bank account. And do I even look at it again? No. Oh. <laughs> Lights stay on and the world, the world keeps spinning. That's, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Karen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's like one of the things. So uh, I actually, you writing all sorts of different things actually helps my brain. Also, like it just helps me. Mm-hmm. I always want to be writing something, and if it's something that's um, a little bit different, that helps me sort of be more interested in it because I can get very bored of my own creativity. Obviously, yeah. it's just mine. I've been living with it for a long time, um, but trying something new uh, really lights a fire inside a little bit, like genre-wise. Anyway, I mean, my topics are kind of always similar they're always kind of similar they're always you know circling around like immigration or pop culture or feminism or things like that race Mm -hmm. uh but um the genre is different so nobody knows i've been basically writing the same thing this whole time it's just the genre is different (laughs) i was was gonna say you 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 kind of mentioned that you hit the same things at the time and i'm thinking i've just i've read literally just read the blurbs to like three of these books and like they're all completely different <laughs> in terms of time, location, when things are going. Like, it's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. But the themes I think are the same. And then I have this joke that I've been writing about my mom for thirty years, quite honestly. But they, aren't we all just yeah? That's all. Yeah. Is. <laughs> yeah. You take whatever you had in your childhood, and then you repeat that hundreds and hundreds of times until I... someone picks it up. It's some Solon does something with it. And I, I, it's a joke that I make a lot, but my mother does not read English. So I'm very lucky that she's never seen it. She has no idea that I've been writing about her this whole time. <laughs> That's beneficial. Just hope no one ever translates it. <laughs> um, they have been translated, but I've been able to keep her away from them. I don't know. I have some kind of magic. <laughs> I, I am curious then, because that is something I've thought about in terms of artwork of 
you know, do you do you ever worry about kind of people looking at your work and then interpreting it into your own life? And then or people from your life getting hold of it and thinking, oh, I need to go, I need to talk to Jen about this, this thing she's written. Uh, you know what? Like my first book, my first novel, uh, The End of East was very much based on sort of my family story, just three generations. And, um, you know, there were characters very much like my older sisters, very mm. much like my parents. And um, that I was really young then and I was worried about everything. And I remember when that book came out, I was so worried that like, my sisters are very literary. They're very, um, they like to read. They love art, all that stuff. We're very similar in that way. And they, I knew they would read it. There was no way they weren't going to read it. So um, I was really worried, but then um, it turned out fine. And I, and I do believe that the people that you love, the people who love you back, um, mm-hmm. they want you to create the thing that you need to create. They want you to be happy. They want you to, um, you know, have a wonderful career in whatever creative endeavor you're, you're into. Um, and they were just really happy that I had the book out. And even if there were some things in that book they didn't love or didn't agree with or remember differently or whatever, it didn't seem to make much of a difference. Um, that way, I, I think that I had extended family also read my books over the years. And you don't really hear from them until someone messages you on like mm-hmm. Facebook or something. Um, and then they'll say, oh, it's great. Um, and no one's ever pointed out an inaccuracy. Having said that, I have a memoir coming out next year and that's like straight up memoir. Like it's not, it's not glossed over with fiction and um, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen, but also there's a part of me that thinks I don't have a lot of interest in separating me myself from my art. I know a lot of people like to have a little distance. They don't like to do things that are too close to the bone. Me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me if people think it's about me or they don't think it's about me. What matters to me is that, whoever my audience is has their own relationship with the work, whether uh, it doesn't matter what they want to think. You can think whatever you want to be. It doesn't matter. (laughs) I don't care. I mean, that's, that's the correct attitude to have, but I think, I I think for a lot of artists, a lot of writers, there's a level of when you, when you create work, you're automatically thinking, you know, that you automatically go back to work. I don't know what my parents going to think of this. Or, you know, what's my my siblings going to think of this? And it stops some people. I mean, there's definitely works in mind, which I've had to think, think, I can't make this now because people I know who are alive will misinterpret this and it may not be about them, but I've, I've held back from making it. And I think that that's something definitely comes into play with that. I think it's like a, everybody has a different comfort level with that. Mm. Right. And I, and I do think that one of the things with this memoir that I'm writing now, I did send versions of it to my sisters because, you know, there were things that, are, you know, um, where I touch on their stories a little bit and like, will you allow me to do this? Like, they can't say anything about what I'm writing about myself, but will you allow me to do this? And they were really generous. And I, and I have never, um, I'm very lucky in that way that my sisters are in fact, so generous with that sort of thing. Um, but I, and I have said this when I was teaching writing to my students is that if you're worried, if it's someone you love and still have a relationship with, then absolutely. You can talk to them about that beforehand. They don't get to say what you do and don't do, but I think it's nice to do that. If you don't want someone like, you know, pouring out uh, a bowl of gravy over your head at like Christmas dinner or whatever. But, um, and then they say, what if it's somebody that, you know, it's like an ex or, or it's like somebody you're, you're estranged from. And then, and then I always say, then why do you care what they think? (laughs) You don't need to care about them. Of course. I mean, there is yeah. some work which we obviously we we release to poke the bear, so to speak. You know, you, there's there's work you put out which is just yeah. This you think it's about you, that's fine. You yeah, know? it's like that Carly Simon song. Yeah, I bet you think this song is about you, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, you we casually slipped in there as well. You're a teacher as well, like you you, you teach people. I do sometimes. Like, I so actually many hats. Like, so just... many hats. <laughs> 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 This is how artists make a living. We have to like do 17 things. I don't think artists can make a living. That's a lie. We've been told. Yeah, yeah it, it is a lie. It's a 100% a lie. That's why we teach. Of course. Of course. If you, if you can't make a living, you, you, you know, go into teaching, which is definitely yeah. well paid and appreciated within our society completely. It's, yeah, sure. Yeah. I get, I get paid moderately to teach. <laughs> so i mean you mentioned kind of briefly so you're, you're obviously in canada you're i am on, I want to the say west coast west coast of canada, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was being very in my head i was just like we're gonna say east coast but that's wrong i know that's nope. wrong <laughs> um but yeah you're, you're from vancouver oh. i am from vancouver i've been here most of my life except when i was in school yeah 
Uh, so I, I visited um, Ontario mm. just before pandemic, pre-pandemic, when the world was you know accessible. Yeah, um, and it was it was one of those decisions which I had to make of, of whether I was going to go east coast or, or west coast, and I ended, ended up in Ontario just because it was cheaper to get the flights because it's so far away. From yeah, uh, were you in Toronto? Uh, yeah, so I, sp- I think I spent what did I spend? I spent a week in Toronto essentially, and then a week in Ottawa, and road tripped my way to and from either one oh, really? so, I could, so i could hit yeah. all the small towns in between that's a nice trip actually it's a nice trip toronto's fun ottawa's cute ottawa is very cute, it's very cute. <laughs> they're very very different cities from, from oh yeah it, toronto it was a shock. Is, well toronto is like it's like new york people like to think it's like new york yeah and then ottawa is like a cute little it's got tulips yeah. and a river yeah. <laughs> it's well spaced out i found ottawa that, that was the way i describe it i think i stepped off the train uh, in Toronto and it was instantly hit in the face with a skyscraper um, and was just like wow so this this is busy and I'd mm-hmm. been in Ottawa the week prior and I was like no this isn't nice relax the roads are open there's barely anybody here and then I realized I was around government buildings yeah that's why there was nobody there <laughs> I don't know I I you know I love I've been throughout all of Canada mostly mostly except up north like way way up north yeah. um, is there and, anything way way up is, is, there, is there much up there um i assumed it gets too cold there's polar bears up there no yeah no they're they're actually we have like really um uh interesting and like dynamic um indigenous communities up north also and a couple of cities a couple of cities uh and there's stuff there's stuff lots of actually there's a lot of really interesting art coming out of there music um and like visual art and stuff so yeah it's pretty cool that's, I guess that was kind of what I was leaning into then in terms of being from the from the West Coast. Is it, do you find it greatly differs in terms of what gets produced coast to coast or area to area around Canada? Or? Yeah, like, so the thing about Canada is we have, like, a really big inferiority com- complex when it comes to, like, cultural production uh, because we always, you know, so much of the media we get is American, like, almost right. all of it. Yeah. Um, and so if you, I people who are not from the United States or from Canada they asked me what Vancouver is like and what Toronto is like. They rarely ask about other cities. Um, and so Toronto thinks of itself as New York city. Vancouver thinks of itself as Los Angeles. So in Vancouver, um, it's, uh, there's a lot of film and TV production here. So that's part of the Los Angeles thing. People here are very into fitness, which is very much like a Los Angeles thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone here, people in Vancouver love to hike. They love all that sort of thing. But what I find really interesting about, the West coast here is that our city has a huge gap between um, the mega rich and the very poor. And that's one of the hallmarks of Vancouver. And I think that we also have, I, I I describe it as relentlessly diverse communities here. Toronto is like that too, actually Mm where both cities are like that. Um, And I find it in Vancouver anyway. um, What all of my books are set in Vancouver. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is in like the collisions of communities uh, whether that's, you know, class, race, uh, you know, uh, you know, background of any kind or sexuality, gender, all, all of those things. And because they're all here and you're constantly yeah. having these people who are so, so different rubbing up against each other in these spaces. Right. Um, and, you know, most of my books are set in a neighborhood here called the downtown East side, which is um, encompasses Chinatown um, and is uh, often in the media called the poorest neighborhood in Canada. Um, but we also have like mega million billionaire people here too. Like the Bezos type people also live here. There's a lot of tech, a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and it's just, I always feel like the people who are really poor and don't have access to things like hiking because they don't, you need a car to get to the mountain to do the hiking, um, are the ones that we often forget about when we forget that they have lives and stories and that they Mm -hmm. fall in love and they also experience grief and joy. Um, so that's always been my interest and that's why Vancouver has, why I've stayed here even this long. Like I've lived in other places briefly and I'm like, maybe I could try this place or this place. And then I'm always back here because there's always something else that's, um, not always pretty often not, but, um, that attracts me, you know, that stuff that is a little bit ugly and a little bit that needs to be, I think, talked about more than we do. Definitely. I think that, yeah, I completely agree. I think that's, I think, I think that's an important role of someone who does write or create in any way, shape or form is that you do look and you, you try and look between, between the big buildings, as they say, and, and say, you know, well, well, what's going on there down here and what can, what can we talk about? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're just like covered in Vancouver's covered in glass 
towers, like glass condo skyscrapers. Like it's it's silly. Yeah. It's just silly. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's. It seems like it always seems like madness to me because I'm. So I'm on the east coast of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's and I'm in a I'm in a city, but we're in a we're a very small city. So it's Lincoln, and Lincoln is. Okay. It has a cathedral. Yep. And that's about it in terms of what makes it a city. <laughs> so we don't have skyscrapers and we don't have any of that. We have, we're essentially a town which got too big at one point and had the cathedral. So they, they declared as a city um, and we have a university and, and stuff like that. So when, whenever I visit other cities, like I go down to London and I'm like, oh, this is what cities in metal look like. Oh, it's, it's my <laughs> sister, by the way, lives in Nottingham. Oh, really? Yes, she does. She teaches, she teaches at the university. Um, also not a huge city. You no. See? Yeah. No, it's what I would call human scale. And right. And then so there are parts of Vancouver where I think about what the parts of Vancouver I think about most are all human scale. There are no towers. They're right. older buildings, um, you know, five stories at most, maybe. Yeah. Um, and that I think we forget. We, we, we often forget about that human scale stuff when we live in the big cities. And I think, you know, um, I, it, it, all, all of that really, if I can see the windows and see the people in them from the, from the sidewalk, that's, that's where my interest is. All of that stuff. And that's definitely not weird. Just looking at windows from the sidewalk. Oh, I'm a writer. All I do is stare at people. Like if you see me on like a bus or a train, all I'm doing is staring at other people. Thank God we have masks that we're wearing know, masks right? all the time. Nobody knows what I'm doing. <laughs> I've got, I feel like I've gone into a very bad habit with my mask because I, 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 I mean, I talk to myself a lot at home anyway, when I'm just walking around or I'll say things to myself and I've started doing it more and more in the supermarkets, just mouthing things to myself and I'll be walking around. And I'm really worried that when the mask call situation improves and I can kind of go out without, I'm just going to be walking around. Just like, yeah, 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 just... Okay. But I think everyone's doing that. I don't think it's just you. And the other day I was walking my dog and um, I was literally like talking to myself, which I often yeah. do. Like I'm trying to like sort through the day and I was talking to me and usually there's no one around. And then someone walks past me and I'm like, Oh no, what do you think of me? <laughs> I always defend it with something my grandma always used to say, which was, you, you know, you ask yourself the question cause you get a better answer. It's like, you get, you get the answer you want. So I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just discussing it with myself. I'm just not able to process it in my head at this point. <laughs> okay. But here's a question for you. When you're talking to yourself, do you make like appropriate facial expressions and gestures also? Oh, definitely. And I, re- yeah. I respond to myself with the appropriate facial expressions. So if I ask myself something stupid, I'll be looking at myself in my head going, why the, fa- why did you ask that Graham? Like what? I, it must be a nightmare to stand around me at times. <laughs> uh, the re- I ask that because I think it's the facial expressions that, that turn people off. I don't think it's the actual words. I think, don't think it's okay. us actually. I think it's when we make the appropriate facial expressions. I think we're very off our rockers. <laughs> it's got a vision of me in a supermarket, very angry at milk, where I'm, I'm just having a conversation. But I was like, I was really angry about the milk for some reason. Like, no, 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 no. I was trying to figure out something else. <laughs> Stay away from that milk guy. Stay away from him. <laughs> Never go near the milk guy. <laughs> I mean, Milkman would probably be better. Milkman seems like a superhero name, but Milk Guy sounds, I don't know, like a children's cartoon. You know what? Let me ask my son. He very much loves to make uh, comic strips and superheroes. I'll ask him, if he, what, what's the difference between Milkman yeah. and Milk Guy? And I'll get back to you. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to the research on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that nicely seg- segues us into the topic of choice, which obviously I, I, I suggested to you. If you wanted to pick a topic, you can pick a topic. Not everybody does. Sometimes we just chat. And yeah. and I mean, you kind of mentioned it as well, of that whole idea of um, some insecurity in terms of receiving American culture from over the border and different things which you see and different things pe- other people see of just how much pop culture we're consuming as a society. And you wanted to discuss that a little bit. I'm tell- what was your view- your angle of that? Uh, I have this thing about pop culture. Like, so when I was growing up, my family um, loves just stuff like cultural stuff. And when we were growing up, my parents, of course, were immigrants and they didn't have a lot of access to like what we would call high culture, I say with quotes. Um, And so the culture that we were consuming was always very popular mainstream things, television, whatever was in, you know, the the newspapers and the magazines Um, and like things like really silly romance novels and uh, you know and my dad uh loved tina turner he in fact named my sister tina 
because um, okay. he loved Tina Turner so much. He loved Chuck Berry. He loved, there was a bunch of stuff that he really enjoyed. My mom loves like um, Canto Pop from Hong Kong. And there was all this stuff. And um, when I started going to school, like university, I realized that my sort of background was not like a lot of other people in you know English literature or creative writing, which mm-hmm. is that their parents were the type of parents who maybe taught at a university uh, or maybe lawyers. Uh, they listened to um, CBC radio all day long, like the educational CBC radio, not right. unlike your BBC and um, listened to classical music and like went to, took their kids to plays and all that. That wasn't happening in my, in my, uh, in my life. And then I, I got this really weird sort of like inferiority complex. Like I had to, I had to catch up, like I had to somehow catch up because I didn't have that. Um, And then at some point, I guess, not until recently, like in my, I'm 45 now. So probably into my forties, I realized that that background that I had in different kinds of cultural production was just as interesting and valid and educational as anything else. But it took me that long to figure that out. Right. And it took me like, you know, 15 years, 15, 20 years in a cultural industry to figure that out after I'd spent so much time catching up, Graham, so much time, so many books read, (laughs) so many Shakespeare plays. Like, I mean, really, uh, which by the way, I love, I love a Shakespearean play. And um, my son actually recently was asking me about, Shakespeare and all this stuff and he's like have you read all of them and I'm like possibly possibly uh I wouldn't recommend reading all of them (laughs) I think I had to for school but I I I think I'm I'm pretty sure I read them all um anyway so for me really sort of reclaiming that pop culture background is really important for me and then also using it because I think there's a thing we all have things that we're fans of whatever it is it could be anything Um, And I think our relationship with the thing that we love the most, the pop culture product, as it were, that we love the most says a lot about who we are Mm -hmm. and our relationship with the world. Um, And I think is a really useful and interesting tool to figure out like what we love, who we are, who we want to be even. A lot of it is like aspirational. Um, So it's, it's a funny, like, I think it says so much and it can be, and I think we don't spend enough time giving sort of like intellectual weight to um, the things that we just love, even if they're silly. Like I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday about Metallica for like an hour. (laughs) I don't like Metallica, but he did. And I was like, amazing. Please tell me all the reasons you love Metallica. (laughs) I mean, that's essentially the basis of this podcast. Have come talk to me for an hour about whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. But no, I I, I completely agree. Um, It's it's something which I think I've had conversations with, with various people over the years of just... I completely relate to the idea of um, getting a little bit of it, like kind of imposter syndrome of when you, you, you know, you start into education and you start going to learn these things and you find that all the other people are, you know, they have these niche interests, which apparently have been handed down from somewhere. I mean, I, w- I went to university to study film and photography. Mm-hmm. As soon as I got there, everyone already had a favorite photographer and filmmaker. And I'm sat there going, well, I watched the video of stop motion from Sledgehammer, the song. <laughs> and I thought, I want to make movies. And th- there was this whole conversation. Be like, oh, no, you but like art house cinema. And I'm like, I need to do more research on this. I really, really do. And then spent years just trying to to live up to that. And I think it's interesting to to hear kind of like come full circle in terms of your, your interest in wanting to get back into that again. Because I think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people dive into trying to do something in the industry, trying to fit in in one way or shape or form, and then rediscover what they initially liked. It's so hilarious to me because I wrote a bunch of stuff about like the things that I really cared about when I was younger. And um, I wrote about um, Anne of Green Gables, the famous Canadian children's book. And then also I wrote about Princess Diana actually for your, for your UK listeners. It's, it, it was a funny, it's, I love I that. <laughs> I love that essay because literally I say in it, why would I even care? Like, you know, I mean, Chinese Canadian girl on the other side of the world. Why did I care about Princess Anna at all? Right. And so that's the whole thing. But like, um, I remember I wrote one essay about uh, Dead Poet Society, uh, you know, starring Ethan Hawke and all those guys. And um, I, I spent a lot of time, a lot of soul searching. Dead Poet Society doesn't particularly age well. <laughs> Just spoiler, doesn't age all that well. If you watch it again, you're like, that guy's a stalker. Like, if you want to- like there's a lot in there that yep. we didn't notice in the nineties, but um, 
I got to meet Ethan Hawke on Zoom. I got to do an event with him on Zoom. Right? Oh, wow. Okay. You have, so this is what's so full. Did you grill him on dead posts? <laughs> no, I didn't. Because <laughs> I, so I was in love with him at 13, 14 years old, right? Nice he's not, of course. And he would have been, he's not much older than I'm, five years maybe. Right. And um, I, he came into the Zoom like waiting room and he was so nice. Like I, I, and I was like, oh my God, am I falling in love with him all over again? Like it was, he's so charming and he like learns everyone's name and he gets there on time and he does his tech check and he's like, he's very professional, but he's also just lovely. And then finally I did say to him, you know, I've been your, I've, I've been your biggest fan since 1991. And he said, really? He said, well, what an honor to meet you. And I'm like, oh my God, does he say this to everybody? Like, I'm like, oh, and then I told him I'd written about Dead Poet Society and he said, you can ask me anything you want. I know everything about that movie because of course I do. And I was like, really? And I couldn't come up with a question. I, I was like, my brain just, I just, everything just, sh-. and it was so funny because I thought this is all I ever wanted <laughs> is this because I get to write about, I, I, I got to love this thing, Dead Poet Society at, at 14 or however old I was, 13. And then I got to have like this long relationship with it, whereby I fell out of love with in fell out of love with it, and then fell in love with it again, and then out of love. And then I get to meet Ethan Hawke. Like that's mm-hmm. nutty. That's and cool. I was like, if I died today, that'd be okay. <laughs> I have peaked in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I got to have this conversation with him that was like an event because he was doing a book tour um, about the role of art and our relationship to movies. Um, and his relationship to acting and then how that, and, and it was seriously the culminate, like that, what that moment was the place that my entire life had been pointing toward. And, uh, and I don't know, I'll, I'll tell you one like silly thing about that particular event that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but it was very full. There are 400 people on this Zoom situation and um, I could see them some of them like you know right. you could, I couldn't see all of them but I could see a lot of them and I, I kept my eye on them a little bit just so that I could because I was his host and I was supposed to like right. you know moderate whatever there was one woman she came in wearing like a v-neck like a regular v-neck sweater and her hair was all done she's full makeup and I'm like right. oh she's shooting her shot she she's <laughs> the only time she'll get to meet Ethan Hawke and as the as the two hours ticked by she would pull down her sweater a little more and then a little more. And then basically by the end, it looked like she wasn't wearing a sweater at all. Like it's just shoulders. And I was like, oh my gosh. And she was like leaning into her webcam and like with the eyes. And I thought, oh, wow. He couldn't see her, I don't think. But I was like, this is the funniest. And I'm like, you, you know what? This is the only time you'll ever, ever meet him. Go for yeah. it. Yeah. I feel you. <laughs> it's, it's reminding me. I think I saw. I think I saw a person on Twitter ago about someone who was saying they got to meet like a singer when they were a kid. And it, like they, they they went to see. I can't, I can't remember who it was. I'm going to use Hanson as the example because they're all for some reason the only popular band I can think of right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were like, oh no! I, so we were kids and we got to meet Hanson, and and I was obsessed with the idea that I could I could fall in love with him, and he would fall in love with me, despite the fact that I was like a nine year old. And this is what I wore, and they posted their picture. So I'm like, it's, I don't know where in our, our brains it goes. Okay, I'm going to meet the person of my dreams, and they're going to love me. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, doesn't I, matter. And I want. It's so funny because this is like going back to our relationships with these people who don't exist really like they in, because we don't meet normally we don't get to meet them and um they are creations of what the person puts out what their team puts out their branding but they're also creations in our head because in our heads there's this very direct emotional connection there is a relationship there even if it's not like entirely reciprocal mm-hmm. um and it's this it's this weird um it's this, uh, I liken it to writing because when I write, you know, I'm writing a relationship with something that doesn't exist. So this relationship that we have with the, with the person or the character or role that, that we connect with the most, we're actually creating that in our head. We're all being writers and our, our artists just creating this relationship, which I think is a very fascinating thing. So people will say that they're not creative or they're not imaginative, but doesn't everyone have a relationship like that in their lives though? Like everybody has somebody whether it was my dad and tina turner whether it's you know the person you're talking about and hence and um it doesn't matter right so then when we and then when we meet them it's a continuation of the imaginary relationship which is kind of psychotic but like also because for the other person for the real oh, yeah. ethan hawk or the real yeah. hands and it feels psychotic 
But for the for the fan, it makes total and complete sense, right? Definitely. I, I, this, I, there's a, such a straight. There's a moment I feel like when when you are in one of those situations where your brain has to readjust for all the extra information you're about to get. Because, like you say, you know, you you generate a picture of someone and how they're going to react, how they're going to talk, how they they're, they're going to speak. Especially when you read something. I I always have a saying in my head was like, I don't know what I would say if I met the people who make the things I love. And to that point, I will avoid meeting them because I don't know what I want to say. Like, I don't want to okay. be in that awkward situation. <laughs> but who is it for you? I want to know who is it for you. Um, I think from just off the top of my head, one of the who's, who's still living is Chuck Palahniuk. Who... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've read most Chuck Palahniuk's catalog and he, he's one of his writers. And I'm just like, yeah, I, you know, I love his books. Everything about them, you know, the, the, the themes, the, the sayings, everything. And I would love to meet him. And I can picture in my head, I've watched interviews with him. And I'm just like, I, yeah, I don't really know what I'd actually say to him. Like, okay, I've heard he's pretty nice. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I, I think that would be the worst part, is I'd be sat there in my brain, going off my mind with anxiety, of just like, yeah, so I really like your work. Um, and he'd just be very <laughs> polite about it. And, oh, yeah, I don't have any questions for you. <laughs> I actually don't know if he would just be polite. I think he would engage. I think he's that type of guy. (laughs) I mean, I've I've had that um, kind of on podcast of just inviting people who work I followed for a while and then obviously getting into to interact with them. It's a really mind blowing experience and something I feel like I'm quite lucky to do on the podcast is that I get to hit people up like yourself, you know, just out of the blue and say, hey, if you want to come chat chat with me with the goal of saying, hey, do you want to spend an hour of your life chatting to some random and I I, hear, I email people who are, I guess, what you, you'd call like high level celebrity in some yeah. way, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers, just on the off chance. I don't know what I'd do if they respond. <laughs> if they came back and said, I, yeah, we'll come along. I'm like, okay, cool. There was one. Okay. So I wrote a book about the film, My Own Private Idaho, written and directed by Gus Van Sant and like, mm-hmm. a, like a little fan book, yep. you know, in like an academic situation, little memoir. So, uh, I one day, Graham, got an email from Gus Van Sant. <laughs> yeah. Just out of the blue. Okay. Did not expect it. I So the subject line said, from Gus Van Sant. <laughs> I don't think he... And he had an AOL.com email. Oh. Like, I don't know how old his computer is or, yeah. like, what his systems are, but clearly he doesn't care about such things. Yep. So then he sent me this email, and it said, Dear Jen, I got a copy of your book. Thank you so much for honoring my work with your words. I really loved it. And uh, you did a great job. And if you ever want to talk about it, just email me. Sincerely, Gus Van Sant. <laughs> and I was like, I read it. No joke. I was sitting on my couch working. I work on the couch. And I like, I passed out. Like I fainted for about 30 seconds. <laughs> I, I couldn't, my blood pressure couldn't take it. So like, I passed out. And it took me two days to write back to him because I didn't know what am I going to say? What do people say? Like, I, I just, I just emailed him back and I said, thank you so much. Like, well, <laughs> what else can you it, say to them? <laughs> you can't. And it was, and then I started thinking about it. And then like, you know, some of my friends were saying to me, well, of course he, he wanted to reach out to you because it's really nice when people are fans yeah. of your work and they engage with it on a really deep level. And I said, yeah, yeah. that's it. So then when we meet, the people we care about so much and we're always surprised that they like want to talk to us. It's because we're engaging with them about the thing that they love, which is their work. So yeah. like Graham, if you do meet Chuck Kalaniak, I actually don't really know how to pronounce his name, but if you do, I, I always forget. I'm, I'm I always say it this way. I say, <laughs> so I don't know if it's right, but if you ever meet him and you're like, I'm your biggest fan and you say something like, I want to talk about this moment in this book. Oh, he'll love it. He'll love it. <laughs> there's, there's a, I think it's one of those things that when you, when you are a creator and when you, you, well, not idolize, but when you respect creators, you forget that they're human, yet you're very mm-hmm. aware that they're human. Because I think that's something when you, something gets criticized by someone who's made something which you love in your brain, you're like, oh, I really, I hope they don't feel bad about this because, you know, I, I really liked it. But, this, you know, a few people over here are really shouting about this being, you know, the worst thing in the world. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this, this is really good. And, you know, and you're, you're thinking, how would, I, how would I handle this going through this? And you forget there's those different aspects to them, like, like the, the idea of them going shopping. It blows your yeah. mind at times. You're like, hang on a minute, Gus Van Sant. We'll have to go shopping at some point. 
at some point. Well, you know, <laughs> it's like, I can't believe he even has an email address. Yeah. Why is he not just writing it on a scroll with a quill pen on like the back of Flea? Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> Like, who's doing that? He's not living up to the image I created in my mind. Is he just sitting there with a laptop? That seems wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I like when you get that, though, and you, you discover something about someone who you have followed for a while, which is very on brand for them, or something which you just like, yeah, no, you know what? I can respect that. I think I, I read about um, Alan Moore, the mm. comic book creator, and it was something about him destroying keyboards. <laughs> because he types with such vigor that keyboards don't stand up to what he had. So there was a, a call out on Twitter, I think it was from his daughter, who was looking for an industrial keyboard, the kind they use in like manufacturing plants, which are made of metal, essentially. And apparently that was the last one he had and he broke it. Oh God. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, that that lives up to the mythos. I wouldn't believe anything else if you told me. <laughs> I mean, that's funny. I'm trying to think like if anyone I know is like, I mean, I just was reading about Beyonce. And she apparently has a vault that is climate controlled of all of her outfits, like famous going out outfits, like costuming and like red carpet things. And it's allegedly like 13,000 square feet. I mean, that, 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 that reminds, cause there's, there's, I feel like there's so many stories like this. I mean, there's a, there's a famous story about Prince who had, he, so Prince had his, his vault in his house which was full of work which you've never seen or never never even knew about because Prince just kept creating work and it would go into Prince's vault. And then when he passed on, everyone was like, what do we do with the vault? Like, what do we do with Prince's back catalogue of work? Which So what happened to it? <laughs> I don't know. Because I, th- I think there was, I think I'm refer- referencing this right. There was an interview with Kevin Smith who shot a mm-hmm. documentary for Prince about the creation of one of his new albums. And when he finished the documentary, Prince's assistant basically said, you're like, oh, you know, how do you think it went? And Kevin was like, oh, yeah, I think it went really well. I think it'll come out. And she was like, just to, just to quell you, most of this will probably never, ever come out. And she's, he was like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, most of this, you, you may never see the light of day. This will just go into the vault. And it was just like, like, that. like you know what? Prince was a pretty mysterious guy. I, yeah. That's okay, so okay, <laughs> see, this is interesting to me because the level of fame that mm. Prince has or had, how did he remain so mysterious? Like that takes work. That's effort to That's do that. Yeah. He had he had to have wanted to be that way, right? I think you have to do that from day one as well. I think you can't pull back. But then, from... how do you know that you're going to need the mystery? How do you know how famous you're going to be? Like That's I, because like <laughs> Prince just knew. I, you know what? That's the magic of Prince. Because, like, I, you know, potentially any of us could become famous one day, but we don't know that yet. So, like, all of our stupid shit's on Facebook still. So, like, we like, I, that's interesting to me, like, how he, but Beyonce does that, too. She yeah. has that also. So, it's interesting, and, like, I would love if I could ever ask her, which I probably never will have the opportunity, but I would love to ask her, at what point did you realize that, it, that you the the figure of Beyonce is going to be this big of a deal. Like, mm-hmm. when do you start building the vault? When do you start? Because she also allegedly has like hours and hours of footage and music that she's never done anything with. She just keeps it. Like, how do you? When do you start that process? Like, how do you know you're going to be an icon? Like, I uh, like you have to really like. How do you believe in yourself that much? <laughs> like. No, seriously, aren't the rest of us just filled with self-loathing? I mean, I know I am, but like... I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that's pretty standard, right? That, that, that seems natural to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, self-confidence and ego does not seem natural to me in any shape or form. Doubting myself, now that I can get on board with, that, you know, that yeah. seems like something which is adaptable we can use. Yeah, every day, every day, we, we're like, yeah. why didn't I do that better? Oh, I'll never be able to finish this. Oh, why do I write anything at all, Jen? That sentence is so terrible. This happens every day. But like I, so how do you know you're gonna be a, like a massively famous icon? How do you believe that? Like that's I really want to know like how people who seem to believe seem to believe it how they get there. Like what series of events have to occur, or are you just like that? <laughs> do you think there's? I don't know. I don't feel like there's. A, I don't know. I definitely think there's people who definitely are born like that who believe that from birth. Like even as like a toddler walking around school, just like I'm gonna be big. Nobody's going to say that. 
I feel like you must be right because I yeah. don't think it's a natural state of affairs. I think like 99.9% of us do not have this. <laughs> well, I think, I think as well, though, I think you get people like us, you know, normal people, who would at some level obviously make it big and it's a complete surprise. And those are yes. the ones which we get in the media who we then watch fall in some capacity. And we, we kind of look at it and we, we think of it from the outside of like, oh, well, no, they were aiming for this. This is what they're aiming for. I think Billie Eilish is probably a great example of that, of someone who went huge very quickly, but is a very private person and didn't have a choice about being thrown out there so, to, so much and just had to pull back a bit. And it was like, okay. So do you think she's got a bit of Prince and Beyonce or the opposite? I think she's probably adapted more Prince and Beyonce as she went bigger. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because... I, I, I think a lot about, um, I've been thinking a lot about Olivia Rodrigo in particular, because okay. she's taken this 90s Alanis Morissette kind of um, look and uh, sound and um, sort of like persona. And of course, obviously, the 90s are like my main area of specialty in life mm-hmm. <laughs> in general. And so uh, she, I think about her a lot. And I think about the ways in which her trajectory is gone and it's been very fast it appears to be very fast i know she was like a a child actor and stuff but yeah. whatever um i mean it appears to have gone very fast and she appears to not have a barrier between herself and her audience yeah. and then then therefore is she going to be one of the people who <clears throat> crashes i don't yeah. not that i wish it for her but like, yeah. there's a part of me that wonders um because then I think I would liken her to perhaps maybe like a little bit older than her, like a Demi Lovato, who definitely has had her moments of crashing and yeah. uh, rock bottoms. So it, it's interesting because there's there's no there does not appear to be any sort of filter between her and her audience, and that worries me. <laughs> well, that's that's what concerns me about when we go on about social media and you think of like young TikTok stars or young Instagram stars and they're people who I think they have an idea in their mind that they have to be a hundred percent connected to an audience yeah. because, because they're not necessarily producing work, so to speak, they have nothing to distance themselves with. They essentially are putting themselves out there as I'm the icon, I'm the brand and I'm doing this. So I want to be a hundred percent with my fans and they end up putting all of their life online. And so then they, they struggle to call back, as it were. I, because it's interesting to me about, like, with social media, you get that instant gratification of the mm. likes and the comments and the stuff, the good comments. And it's very instant and it's very, like, you, you're getting feedback from your fans. So if you're somebody like a Beyonce, though, who is rarely on social media and she mostly, uh, the relationship people have with their work is her actual work, like the albums or the singles um, or, you know, her clothing line or whatever. But... So you have to learn to get your gratification. You have to learn to delay it if you're, if you're doing what Beyonce is doing, or even Adele for that matter. Like there's like, she doesn't, she's not totally involved all the time either. Um, So that takes again, a huge belief in the power of your work though. If you're not getting those small hits from your Instagram likes all the time. And I, and I am like I said, it takes a very strong person to, to, to wait five years for your yeah. album to come out, right? Yeah. So like which Adele has done, as we see, and she's like, you know, what did she say in the interview? I'm ready to be famous again. And I'm like, oh. It's just a choice really- now for Adele. She just steps yeah. out of the house and you're like, you know what, I'm going to be famous today. <laughs> see, I get the feeling about Adele though. So this is why my thing about Adele is that she says she loves to go grocery shopping. I just watched the interview with her. Loves to go grocery shopping. And, um, but she says she doesn't even really do that anymore because it's impossible for her to go grocery shopping and not be recognized. I said, even with no makeup on and like wearing a pair of sweatpants, like, but I guess she is that famous. Everyone knows what she looks like. Like literally everyone. Yeah. It's It's fascinating. That's that's why I always like the idea. And I think I've said this before. That's why I like producing objects, so to speak, like paintings, illustrations and stuff like that, because it's very rare people see you. They yes. see your work. So it means that at any point you can wander into a star and you've got some level of like undercoverness yeah. that no one would recognize you. I got terrified because so my podcast was quite small. <laughs> Someone recognized me from the podcast whilst no. I was out drinking once. And they came over to me and was like, you're, you're Graham. And I was like, yes. How, how do you know? <laughs> at this point, I was, I was 
way gone drunk as well and I did not know what to do with the situation. <laughs> he was just like, yeah, I really enjoyed your show. I was like, I don't know how to deal with this situation as much as I wouldn't know how to deal with being drunk. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to the washroom now and shut the door and be alone for 15 minutes because you're freaking me out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this. so the thing about being an author is nobody ever recognizes my face, rarely, because yeah. no one's walking around with a copy of my book and my author photo on it. Like, nobody ever does. But one time, I was at a doctor's appointment at okay. like like an OBGYN female doctor's appointment. So I am not looking dignified. I'm not in a dignified position. Mm -hmm. And the nurse is there and she says to me, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a writer. She's, and then she went, wait, are you Jen Suk Fong Lee? And I'm like, you're looking at my undercarriage and you're asking me, and she's like, I have all of your books at home and I listen to your podcast. I'm like, no. You want to please, have me a pen and I'll autograph something whilst I'm laying here? Like, <laughs> please don't tell anyone this is how you met me. Just say you saw me at the grocery store. Like, I can't. <laughs> I don't know, like this. That's insane. <laughs> and I was like, no. Because it was like, it's like a women's clinic. And like, right. everyone who works at a women's clinic listens to CBC radio and podcasts and read books. Like, I get it. Awesome. It was my target audience. They're all women. But yeah. I, was like, I was like, no. It's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> And I told my friend this, who's a doctor, and she said she should have just not said anything. I'm yeah. like, I know! <laughs> that, that would have been the professional thing to do, but at the time, you know, she was obviously having a moment. She was she was having the moment we have of like, I don't know what to say to this person. I'm currently inspecting them. Hmm. Yes, please don't tell anyone <laughs> about my medical issues, please. Like, <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. I, I, what I find interesting, though, is like, obviously, we, we just sat for 40 minutes or so, and we thrown out every pop culture reference under the sun when it comes to music have and, we now well i mean we, <laughs> you know we we've we found common ground there's been very few things which either one of us mentioned which not like one of us hasn't seen so we've been consuming the same culture throughout levels of different you know countries and time periods and everything like that and yet it is one of those things that we, like you say said at the beginning that it's, it's almost like a stigma around the things which we enjoy and the things mm -hmm. which we consume to such a level where it's almost kind of gatekeeping things because you listen to these things or you do these things. And I, th I find that fascinating that different societies and different kind of groups sit around and say, oh, well, you know, oh, they're, in they're into action movies. Well, they're not really a movie maker then, or, you know, they listen to that, Adele, so they can't be that good at, into music then. And you're like, that mm -hmm. drives me crazy. Yeah. I, I hate that stuff. Like, and I was talking to my son about it because he... <laughs> He said the other day, you watch too many YouTube makeup tutorials. And I said, hey, you don't make fun of our interests. You don't do that. <laughs> Everybody likes what they like. If it's not hurting anyone, leave it yeah. alone. <laughs> and um, that was a really, it, the stigma around those things. And I think like, I remember when I was younger, like in the 90s, like if you were into a certain kind of music, mm -hmm. if you were a woman and a woman of color at that, it, you were like a you were like a, a unicorn or not even a unicorn they they would just talk down to you like if I was trying to engage with a certain type of dude about like I don't know um Rage Against the Machine or Jane's Addiction or uh, the Jesus and Mary chain like a very particular type of like fandom was attracted to those bands yeah. um and uh it, it, they would just talk to me like I was dumb <laughs> and and I found that I think that might be the seeds of this whole gatekeeping rage that I have, like, because yeah. it was just all I wanted to do was listen to the music and talk to somebody else who also wanted to listen to the music. Like it was not, I was not trying to, um, you know, you know, there are a lot of those sorts of gatekeepers now who like, so for example, when they did the all female cast of Ghostbusters, they, they like had a, they had a massive tantrum because, you know, it was not the Ghostbusters of their youth or whatever. Um, so I was never, I was never like, if I love something. So what I think that what in that discussion about Ghostbusters, for example, what they're missing out on is that the people who made this all female led Ghostbusters did that because they love it, not because they're trying to ruin it. And I think that there's that, that just drives me bananas. Like it, it makes me so angry because we all have different relationships with the thing and in all um, situations everybody is allowed to have a diversity of like opinion or affection or emotion about something and um, you know we, we often talk about diversity and inclusion often being about race or sexuality or gender mm -hmm. but we also need to talk about it in terms of like just diversity of like experience and background and what we bring to something yeah. and in fact all of those conversations are lovely and valid and how wonderful that someone loves the same thing that you do 
and has a different take on it. Isn't that a wonderful conversation to have? Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things that I've never understood people who, I've never understood the term guilty pleasure because oh, it, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I just don't understand it. And I, I have no filter when it comes to like films or music or anything. It's like, I will watch and vulture on anything I'm interested in and I will watch it full out and I will enjoy it. I watched Jack Frost the other night and it's, most people say it's a terrible film. And I'm like, no, this is a great film about a snowman. We're, we're sitting down and watching Michael Keaton play a snowman. Why wouldn't we? And I've just never understood it. And it's, it's almost like people get a bee in their bonnet about how you can consume things. Are you mm-hmm. consuming things in the right way? Are you consuming things in the wrong way? I hear quite a lot. And I, it's just something I, I almost don't understand how you can get to that point with your enjoyment that you feel like you need to lock it off from other people because you're worried about them ruining your experience in somehow. Uh, yeah and I think that's very strange I just think that like you you don't own it mm-hmm. <laughs> first of all but like second of all it's just it's it's if you're somebody who who loves something truly like this sort of possessiveness I mean maybe it, it, but then what are those people like in their personal relationships that would be scary to even like well, I think it could be awful <laughs> that's I think that's what's usually consuming though because people do get so passionate about it. like you mentioned with kind of the Ghostbusters it was one of those things which came out and they're like we're doing this thing we're making this film because we love the Ghostbusters mm-hmm. and people were like no don't ruin the old films like how is this ruining the old films the old film still exists it still exists <laughs> you watch them how you want it this isn't going to replace them they're not removing the old things from sale you still own them presumably on multiple copies if you're that big a fan of them and they're still going to be out there. So how it, it, it just doesn't alter. Yeah. No, no you don't have to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> like just, you don't. Not everything's don't. made for you. Like, <laughs> well, and I think, I think that's it. It's just that they expect everything to be made for them or to be for them. And I find that a really scary uh, concept. And I think that, you know, I would love to know those people, those sort of toxic fandoms, how do they overlap with other types of like toxicity that exists in our society, right? Um, and then is maybe like, one of the things that, you know, I talk about a lot is that pop culture says a lot about who we are, and like, what our society and what the zeitgeist is and all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been very interesting to me, like when I was on, uh, I made a joke about Brian Adams, the Canadian rock star, uh, because he had said some racist shit about COVID. And I, I made a joke. And my joke was, um something like you know if people are mad at brian adams now that's just like payback for all those sappy pop ballads we had to dance to in my grade six school dances something like that it was just a joke and um it's brian adams he's never gonna see it who cares (laughs) yeah and then you the brian adams fans came out for me and i did not even know there were that many of them because like i why would i know that and and they were so angry with me and they were like saying racist stuff sexist stuff and I had to lock everything up all my social media for like a week because and I thought you people are awful like like, so this like toxic fandom is also toxic because they were clearly had no inhibitions about hurling like racial insults at me and I was like okay so what's the Venn diagram then of like toxic fans and other types of awfulness yeah um Anyway, that's just, it's one of those things I think about quite a lot. And, and um, I'd like to think, I don't even know if I have fans. If I have fans, I'd like to think they're nice people. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I think there's value in, in, in well, I think like, like we were saying with the, the whole idea of people and their fan groups and their audiences, there's value in reminding your audience how your audience should behave. And I think yes. that this is something we've seen. I mean, there's that uh, tragedy at the Astra gig where people obviously pass on and, I think I've seen it a lot with underground artists and a lot of independent labels where people will sit there and it's like, we have no problem with telling you if you're racist, get the fuck out of our family. Yeah. You know, if we see you kicking off at a show, get the hell out of our show. And I think once you get to that scale, it becomes so much more important, but then obviously you get trapped and you do try to disconnect from your fans. You do try to do the Prince and Beyonce thing and step back. So you can't have that one-on-one connection. And like you were saying with where, the possessiveness of culture and content leads into their regular lives. They start thinking of the people as theirs, you know, this is no longer, you know, artist. It's no longer Britney. It's, it's, she's ours. You can't change her because this is how I see her. And if you change her, that'll ruin every experience I ever had. And you're like, well, you're, you're trying to own a person and that's not something you can do or no. should want to do. I think, I think there's a very like, with all of our fan relationships, I think we definitely own our experience with the persona. 
we can own the experience, but the actual person, that's where I think that people lose the thread of what's actually occurring. And like our experience is valid and personal and lovely and all those things, but that's the only thing you own though. You don't own the rest of it. And I, and I, yeah. And I think it's funny, like I was in edits for um, my forthcoming book and my editor wanted me to, I was writing about um, the fetishization of Asian women and sexual harassment and assault and stuff. And she wanted me to explain a point about fetishization, which I thought was abundantly already clear. And I, and then she said, I, I think a lot of readers won't get this. And I said, if my, if the person who reads this doesn't get it, I, they shouldn't be reading my book. Like right. I don't, that's that's just the, like the bottom line. Like if you don't, I don't want to explain it anymore. I already have. Uh, you don't like it, and if you're going to be that way, then I don't want you as a reader anyway. Which is like a really, by the way, a very privileged way. You have to have a certain amount of power and like cultural currency to even say that. And I yeah. and I understand that, and I want to recognize that I have some privilege in that respect. Um, and I think that for emerging artists, that's harder to do because how do you say no to anything, like to anyone or anything who yeah. is interested in your work? So. I don't know. I don't know. What I, would, what I would say to emerging artists, set your boundaries early and stick to them and the audience will come. That's what I would say. <laughs> I don't think that's bad advice. I think I, it's, it's definitely something which I've, I've, I've looked at through my own career of like what little career I have of kind of looking at things and saying, okay, well, do I want to go down this line because it would make me more money or I might be able to do this. And instead thinking, well, no, because it's insincere. It's not how I want to do things. It's not what I want people to take away from it. And if I do that, someone else might pick it up and misinterpret it. And I'm, that's not something which I want to have to deal with, you know, a thousand followers down the line or whatever, when you kind of think of it. So I think that, yeah, saying a clear boundary for yourself and what you want from an audience, is great advice. Yeah. And I would say too that like we only run into these things as artists when we're thinking about making money. <laughs> if we're if the money doesn't come into play, we do whatever we want. We have whatever boundaries we want. But when it comes to like producing your art and getting paid for it, there will be times when you make a decision that doesn't adhere to your personal sort of code of ethics. And like, and that happens to everybody at least once. Um, and I, the, my advice for that is always to, when you're considering money-making ventures as an artist is to consider what your code of ethics is first. Um, and cause it's, it's always capitalism that mucks us up. <laughs> I think there's, there's, I mean, there's a slight side note there. Like obviously, you know, a lot of people get a lot of grief for selling out, so to speak. And I think it's, it's incorrect necessarily for us to give grief to people who do that because we don't know their personal situations. No, you don't. And, you know, if, if someone needs a grand and they're going to do something for a grand, it's like, fair enough, you need that money, go do it. You know, you, you be you. But remember that you're going to have to deal with the, the flack once you've done that. You know, this might come back to haunt you. This might come change what whatever situation you were in. And to kind of go back to the points we were making at the very beginning was <clears throat> you can't control your audience either. No. You can't tell who's going to get hold of it. It might be, you know, me looking up Chip Knapp's home address and trying to hit him up, or you running into Ethan Hawke in the grocery store. So you don't know how they're going to react. So it's better to control your audience. It's better to police your audience in some way that you sit down and go, okay, well, these people, if you're going to be here, you got to behave in the right way. And, yeah, and yeah. I think it's it's interesting, but I also think I would also say to emerging artists is that uh, I don't want you to feel a lot of pressure about all of this either. Because people change. No, people change and your ideas change and that's fine and that's all good. Uh, but just it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard when you're producing stuff for like public consumption, there are all these considerations that, that don't occur if you're doing a private, more of a private situation for a job. So um, yeah, think about it. Just think about it once in a while. It's all just right. Think about it once in a while. We all make mistakes. We all have missteps. We all do something for money that, you know, we didn't want to at some point. I'm sure I have at least a half a dozen I could tell you about right now. <laughs> That's an episode, different episode of the podcast. Yeah. Should, what have do you it. done for money that you're ashamed of now? <laughs> Too many things. Yeah. <laughs> things I won't say on camera because it's incriminating. <laughs> But I think that's a good point to round this out on. You know, oh, all right. We've had a long discussion. Like I say, you know, we it's it's been interesting kind of hearing different points on pop culture. And, you know, it, it, it's a strange topic to cover at times because, like you say, you know, everyone comes at it from a different angle. But it is a huge part of a society, so it should be something we discuss more in a in a critical sense rather than just a, I'm consuming this and this is, mm-hmm. this is how, I'm, how I'm seeing the world. It's how we keep those brain cells active. <laughs> 
or how we kill them in, in some yeah. other ways, depending on what we're consuming. Yeah. I mean, if you're watching a lot of Real Housewives, I don't know that those brain cells might be gone. <laughs> they might, they, you might have to revive them. Go listen to some. No, no, no shade to the Real Housewives people. I know you love it. It's fine. It's just I don't know that it's good for you. That's all. Yeah, I'm not, not entirely too sure. <laughs> but thank you for coming on, Jen. Thank you. It's been thank lovely you so to much, Graham. Um, and we will talk to these guys later. We'll okay. Call it that.